It's the Kincaid and Breckenridge Highlight Show podcast. I'm Roger. That's Rob. Today, uh, obviously, with the verdict uh, in the Gomeshi trial coming down, it was not guilty. And uh, so we talked about that with uh, a professor of law from the University of Ottawa, Carissa Mamathan. We also talked about the idea of giveaway weekends. The group Common Sense Calgary thinks this would be fun. Uh, that whole concept of uh, that old couch you want to get rid of, you're going to put it on your lawn and put the free sign on it. We all take a weekend, and, and we all do it together, and a lot of uh, interesting reaction to that. Uh, be sure to be listening to Kincaid and Breckenridge Monday to Friday, 9.30 to 12.30 on News Talk 770. Hey, welcome back. I'm Roger. That is Rob. We've got a fluid hour of radio or so here. This is going to be uh, part interview, part commentary part open phones we also got an eye on the uh, monitors here in uh, master control um for the in the event that i don't know who would speak i can't i, I can't imagine gian gomeshi would have a comment at this point no probably not might i mean you never know if there's going to be an appeal or he's got other charges to deal with by the way the cbc has just put out a, a statement basically saying the charges in this case are unrelated to our decision to end mr gomeshi's employment with the cbc uh, that basically they stand by their decision. I wonder, though, if he's now going to go after CBC. I don't know if he can. Now, we, we have, uh, we've spoken with labor lawyer Howard Levitt on this program many times in the past, uh, and he has indicated that by virtue of the fact that he joined th- this union, that he, he negotiated away his right to go after the employer for wrongful dismissal. Right. So I don't know if that's the... I mean, that's one opinion. That's Howard's opinion. It's certainly an expert opinion compared to uh, what I would say on the matter. But I I wonder if that is the universal opinion on the matter. Well, I I guess that remains to be seen. But we've got a case here now where this this the the allegations from these women that, that essentially the women were the evidence that it was on them and their testimony and describing what they felt was done to them by John Gomesh. I mean, complicating the 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 fact is here is that. I mean, this wasn't a rape case, per se, that, that these women were consensually intimate with John Gomeshi, but the allegation before the court was that they did not consent uh, to, to the rough and violent behavior that, that he exhibited and that they were victimized by him. The problem was that there were a lot of inconsistencies in, in their story or that they, they withheld things that, that certainly put their testimony in, in a different light. And eventually the judge concluded here that if the case hinges on these witnesses, that there's no way to determine beyond a reasonable doubt what happened or to determine what is truthful. Uh, joining us on the line, Carissima Mathen is an associate professor of law at the University of Ottawa. has been watching this trial closely. Carissima, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be back. I mean, at the end of the day, it's about this case, these witnesses, these allegations, but obviously there's raised so many questions, hasn't it, about the justice system and, and how the system treats accusers it has it's it's sort of been uh, a crucible for this agonized debate about sexual assault how we deal with sexual assault and really the broader goals of criminal justice and i think in some ways this has been an unfortunate case to have this level of attention because i think that the amount of information and inconsistency about the three complainants that came out does not reflect the usual sexual assault trial. Um, But that really led, in this case, I think, to some conclusions by the trial judge that many, you know, legal scholars certainly could have predicted. But it's in this context of this really fraught conversation. And, you know, to be fair, there were aspects of the 
cross-examination, and even I'm still reading the full decision because we had a very lengthy uh, oral delivery of the verdict mm-hmm. before the, the decision was released. I'm still reading it, but in terms of some of the comments made by the trial judge, I think would, would raise some eyebrows, um, you know, about the degree to which relevant versus irrelevant information was being highlighted about about some aspects of the complaints. Yeah, I think you you said in that, uh, Charisma, that this is not necessarily the typical uh, display that we would see from complainants in a sexual assault trial. Uh, just to unpack that a bit, I think you're you're saying that there's a danger in any side in this uh, in this conversation looking at the instances uh, that played out in this trial and saying this is what all sexual assault complainants do. They they hide evidence or they corroborate their stories for a better shot at conviction. I think that's a real problem with this particular case. That's right, absolutely. And on the other side, right, it's really important to remember that inconsistencies in a witness's testimony in court, inconsistencies with other sworn statements, it's very difficult for any judge um, to, to minimize that. Yeah, but I mean, how much leeway, right, leeway given to, to witnesses because people are going to forget certain things or, you know, the, the exact timeline of, of what might have happened, they, they might get those things wrong. But in terms of getting to, to the, you know, the basic facts of what happened, how much leeway does the system give accusers and give witnesses? Well, in what I've been able to read of the decision so far, I mean, the trial judge is interesting. The trial judge notes that simply, for example, misremembering certain specific details as to, you know, did the punch happen first or the slap happen first, that's not necessarily fatal. It can be if if there's a real pattern of it. And also, you know, having contact with someone you claim assaulted you after the fact is in and of itself also not necessarily relevant. This is really an object lesson in the, the notion that when, you know, you're, you're giving a story and something comes out that makes you look maybe in a bad light, you know, the, the attempt to try and explain that away, to offer explanations that seem implausible, that really can be your undoing in a trial. So um, I think the trial judge would have been sympathetic, it appears, to the witness admitting, I was embarrassed, let's say, by some of this um, mm-hmm. post-contact. Now, you know, whether that would have made an ultimate difference in his overall conclusion, we don't know. But what he found uh, unreasonable was the nature of some of the explanations offered by, by the witness. So I think with the first witness, in terms of who sent Gian Gomeshi a picture of herself in a bikini, it, it, some of that was was hard to reconcile with what she said about being traumatized by John Gameshi, but her explanation on the stand that she was doing it to bait him into contacting her, the judge just found that implausible. And then that, to him, suggested a lack of truthfulness. Right. You know, I want to kind of go over some, some points, and, and not to just go over the same ground again and again, but so much of the commentary that people are following this largely online. And I know that we've got a, a very, you know, tuned in and engaged audience here. But if you look at the online portion of this, the hashtag on Twitter is dominated by, um, you know, these assertions that unless a woman, uh, a complainant remembers it correctly, the judge will say not guilty or uh, all these different things. But we're not focusing on the part of the verdict that, that you just brought up, which is that the judge saying, look, it's not entirely fatal to your testimony if you misremember the order of events. But what was problematic for the judge 
in giving the the complainant you know proper credibility to find a, a to on which to base a conviction was like things about misremembering the car, the fact that this happened in a car that he didn't actually own at the time. Yes, and and the and the judge notes that in in, in you know in, in there there could be a case in which that wouldn't be as important, but um, because the complainant in this case used the her misremembering that John Gomeshi drove a Volkswagen Beetle to her indicating that he was then a nice guy. To the judge, that was too specific, a link between the car, kind of car he drove and her impression of what type of person he was, that right. when it later came out that, well, in fact, the judge accepted, he didn't have that car for another seven months. You know, it, it was the specificity of, of that memory and what she took from it that created a problem for right. the judge. If I could just um, go to the, the issue around social media, media because yeah. mm-hmm. I'm really interested in the in in how criminal justice unfolds in our Twitter um, obsessed age and I of course I, I engage on Twitter we're, we're a it, nation of lawyers Carissima it's true. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely and there's of course lots of you know great information online if you look for it but um, you know on one hand I think it's great that that you can spur this kind of debate and dialogue that's exactly what we should have in the area of sexual assault but I think to have so much focus on one particular case uh, it, it can be distorting and even today and you know when when a judge reads his verdict, uh, it's and it's dribbled out in 140 character, you know, tweets. It it actually it, you perceive it very differently than when you actually sit down and read the decision mm-hmm. as a whole thing. So, and you know, I would suspect that a lot of people won't sit down and read that decision. Right. You're probably right. Um, you know, getting back to the point about what this represents with regard to the justice system and, and the notion that maybe these women were let down by the crown or conversely, I guess, whether the crown was let down by these women in terms of what does the crown need to know going in? How much of the onus is on the crown to essentially find the weaknesses in their own case? Well, the crown works with what they get from the complainants, right? So we don't, we don't know how detailed the interviews were. Um, remember, too, that the Crown is not supposed to be seeking a conviction. The Crown is supposed to be preparing a case that will be, you know, that will present the evidence fairly. Um, but, and anything that the complainant tells the Crown then has to be disclosed to the accused. That's, a, that's an obligation, a clear obligation on the Crown. It, it seems, I mean, it's, all, it, it's obvious that some of this information just wasn't disclosed to the Crown. The Crown's in a very difficult position when that happens, right? And this is not to necessarily disparage the complainants um, for the choices that they made, because part of this, too, is there's this underlying pressure, right, that women may feel about how they have to present themselves and a fear of judgment and so on. But in a criminal case, in a criminal trial, you know, you, that, that's a very dangerous attitude to have. And it clearly worked very badly for the Crown's case um, that, that that happened. Can, can we talk procedurally about this? Because I'm of the impression, um, 
and and I'll say this like knowing what I know, which isn't much, that Gian Gomeshi would have likely gone to a criminal lawyer in this case, Marianne, and, and said, um, "I've I'm in some hot water here. I need your help." And she would have said, "Give to me everything that you have, and we will construct a defense. Give me your computer. Physically bring me these items, and we will route through everything. We'll construct a defense. It'll cost you a lot of money." The Crown doesn't probably doesn't go to the complainants the same way as though they're uh, asking them to voluntarily let them break into their personal lives and scour for a case. Um, the, the Crown probably doesn't have the same motivation to do that. And then remember, too, that anything the Crown receives has to be disclosed to the accused. Not the other way around. Not the other way around. Absolutely not. The accused uh, can keep everything. Uh, of course, the accused doesn't even have to testify, but in sort of offering a defense, the accused does not have to. There are very, very minor things that, that may need to be disclosed. They weren't an issue here uh, that need to be disclosed prior to the fact. But uh, the accused sort of can keep everything close to uh, his chest and then dole it out um, as it's strategically uh, wise to do so over the course of the trial. Right. Well, again, I mean, the, the question of whether this this speaks to whether we believe all women, right? And and this has been a theme that's emerged through all of this, that, that we need to believe victims. And look, in this case, the police believe these women, the Crown believe these women, enough so that they brought the case forward. I mean, is, is that sufficient? Is that what we mean by saying believing accusers? Well, this is, um, raises a point that I think can be hard for non-lawyers to understand, and frankly, even some non-criminal lawyers to understand occasionally, that the trial is not about what happened per se. The trial is about what the judge accepts as proved beyond a reasonable doubt, and those can be very different things. Right. And that's why, you know, it's not inconsistent to say that you believe the complainants that something, uh, you know, non-consensual, some kind of assault happened, but the uh, damage to their uh, testimony in court uh, raised a reasonable doubt for the judge. There's one sign that's been on uh, flashing on TV uh, from one of the demonstrators out in front of the courthouse, and I want to read it because I think it's representative of part of this argument. But the sign says, when the cross-examination is as violent as the rape, this is a problem. And it, it goes to the question about um, should there be concessions made or should there be different treatment for complainants in sexual assault trials as opposed to other types of trial? Well, in fact, there is uh, already some very progressive and distinct treatment of sexual assault trials in the criminal code. So, for example, evidence of sexual contact other than the occasion in question, whether with the accused or anyone else, is subject to quite um, stringent rules before it can get in. Uh, you're not, you know, uh, the, you're not allowed to, you're not supposed to use lack of external corroboration, like witnesses, to suggest it's unsafe to convict. convict. You're not allowed at all to bring in evidence of sexual reputation. Um, so I, I think the, the law actually has progressed a fair bit. Um, some of the claims that, you know, have come out in terms of the passion aroused by this case around, you know, how can it be right that John Gomeshi doesn't have to take the stand? How can you possibly determine what happened? Uh, art calls for a relaxation of 
the standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, those are just non-starters. Like, that's not, that's not possible. That's, that wouldn't be constitutional. And I don't think that would be a good idea in, in any criminal offense. But I think, and I don't know if this case is the best example, but we have seen other notorious sexual assault cases. I think the need for, you know, education of lawyers and judges in general is a good thing. But it, we also have to recall the criminal law is not at all the best tool for dealing with the problems of sexual assault. In a sense, it, it operates as a last resort. I mean, this is a cultural, a profoundly cultural and social problem. And expecting the criminal law to vindicate sexual assault survivors is, you know, a recipe for frustration. Right. That's a great point. Grissomo, we'll leave it there. Uh, appreciate the insight here. Thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome. All right. That's Grissomo Mathen, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Ottawa. Uh, by the way, uh, Sarah Bosfeld, who, who writes for uh, uh, Chatelaine, uh, has just posted excerpts from a, an interview she did with Lucy Couture, one of the women. And one of the quotes here from Lucy, she says, After I testified, I felt like I had to go up to every person in the world and apologize for ruining the case. Isn't that interesting? So, I mean, how do we view this? And and keep in mind still that, that Gomeshi faces another charge. There is another accuser. And I mean, I think what happened here today is going to cast a long shadow on that. But if if the Crown can secure a conviction in another case, what does it tell us about what, what went wrong here? Let's take a, a pause and ponder that question, Rob. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge. This is News Talk 770. All right, nine seven four eight two five five, and here's one of the troubling aspects of this case. Here is the the assumption people are going to make that these women lied, that Gomeshi was acquitted, therefore it didn't happen, therefore the, these women made it up. Yeah. And you know the 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 verdict, as I understand from what people are posting, even makes a reference to the the false assumption that sexual assault complainants are always truthful. I mean, false accusations do happen. Uh, some people have pointed to the University of Virginia uh, scandal that, that uh, collapsed on, on Rolling Stone magazine. The, we were just talking uh, earlier today about the, uh, the 30 for 30 documentary that was made about the Duke Lacrosse case and a rape that never happened there either. So sure, okay, sometimes false accusations are made. But what the judge here also says is that raising a reasonable doubt is not the same as deciding in any positive way that these events never happened. So the judge is not saying that this never happened. The judge is not saying that the women made it all up. The judge is simply saying that it's, there's no way for him to prove beyond a reasonable doubt what did or didn't happen. And he's got no choice but to acquit. You know, that's the academic distinction that I really think needs to be made in all of this. And I, I said right when we, we sat down uh, at our desks this morning, Rob, that, look, people are going to focus on the two words in this verdict today. And let's be clear, everybody who's followed this case knew it was going to be a not guilty verdict. And if we just focus on the words not guilty, we're not going to get anywhere with this conversation at all. Like there's no progress on that front. Well, he's not guilty, right? But if you focus on the other words, the entirety of the judgment, particularly the phrasing that you just uh, passed on there, Rob, that that doesn't mean that the judge could decide in any positive way that these events did not occur. Just that there was not enough evidence in this case and the credibility and the reliability of the witnesses was not such that these courts could send an individual to jail for this crime. Now, that doesn't mean we don't believe complainants of sex assault. And that doesn't mean that we can't believe complainants 
of sexual assault. But it certainly does mean that there's a burden of proof that has to be met somehow, and it just wasn't done in this case. So, you know, it's like that tweet that you read earlier, Rob, about, um, you know, Gian Gomeshi might not be guilty, but I think he's guilty of something. That's not the justice system that we have, nor the one that we want in this country. No, not at all. I mean, the Duke lacrosse case is, is a great example of all of this because here you had these, these privileged white athletes accused of, of raping a, an African-American woman in the South. And so I, and I think everyone started off from a place of good intentions. And no, we, we should believe this woman that maybe 100 years ago, maybe uh, the, the system wouldn't have believed for a moment that, that this black woman was raped by these, these white men. And so in this case, the, the prosecutor did want to believe her. The problem was he kept believing her through the face of all of this evidence that suggested it could not possibly have happened. Uh, the cell phone records showing, you know, the, the men who supposedly did this were not there and could not possibly have been raping her when she said they were raping her. Or the DNA that showed that there was no DNA at all from any of these men. All of this stuff. And yet the, the prosecutor kept going to the point where he himself ended up uh, being disbarred and discredited. So that's the point. So, okay, fine. You want to believe this woman coming forward. You want to take their accusation seriously. But the way you do that is you investigate it. And you look at whether you can make a case for it, and the justice system will, will determine as best it can whether that crime occurred beyond a reasonable doubt. But the, the dangerous shortcut a lot of people want to take is that, well, the woman said it happened. There's your guilty verdict right yeah. there. That's exactly it. And that's, that's the difficult part of this discussion is that there, there is some... I don't know how to phrase this, but, you know, there are women who are, are stepping forward. I shouldn't say there are women. There are people who are stepping forward and saying, look, the, the, the actions of a sex assault uh, survivor, of a victim of sexual assault, should not be, uh, should not have to be explained following the event. So, oh, you, you continued to talk to him or like your behavior, you behaved in this sort of way. That's proof that it wasn't a sexual assault. And they make a good point in all of that. But the trouble becomes then that you're taking so many pieces off the table. What do you have then to base a verdict upon? Because so many people want the response to that to be, if charges are laid, that means guilty. And that's not good. Well, the other thing is, I mean, a woman may well have been raped, but maybe she's pointed the finger at the wrong person. So you can believe a woman. A woman says, I was raped and goes to police, and you can believe her. But if you're going to put someone on trial, I mean, you got to make sure that, well, that's the person who actually committed the crime. So no longer it's just about whether the crime occurred, but it's whether you got the right person. And, and that's what the system needs to, to try to determine. This has been a big story for a long time, and it's been developing, and you've got a lot of thoughts on it. We want to hear them, 974-8255. We're going to open the phones after the news to 1030. You're listening to Kincaid and Breckenridge. This is News Talk 770. It's Roger and Rob talking about the uh, John Gomeshi verdict, Gian, Gian Gomeshi. Uh, here's the thing. Uh, the judge says, and here's, here's another quote from the judge, which really cuts to the core of this. Uh, the judge says, each complainant dem demonstrated to some degree a willingness to ignore their oath to tell the truth on more than one occasion. It is this aspect of their evidence that is most troubling to the crown that the Crown's case is tainted and incapable of supporting any clear determination of the truth. There it is in a nutshell. You're going to bring these witnesses forward to say this happened. It's entirely on them. They're the evidence. 
You know, it's sort of like bringing forward, uh, you know, there's a knife with blood on it. That's our evidence. Except there's all this other blood on it. And all these different people have handled this knife. And, you know, we lost it for a while, but then we found it again. But here it is. This is the evidence that's going to prove that this guy stabbed this other guy. Well, if that your case hinges on that knife, you got no case. Where does this conversation go now? I mean, the verdict is in. The verdict is there to be read. We now know exactly what the judge was thinking when he dismissed the charges against Gian Gameshi. But there are still people demonstrating. There's a march in Toronto today. And there are people standing with uh, signs outside the courtroom. There is a movement online about believing survivors. I I have two questions for either of these groups. One one group I would like to know this, we believe survivors, at all costs and what part of the fair trial justice system that we have do you want to do away with? Like, how would you modify things to bring more complaints forward, to bring more uh, complaints to trial, to, to get more convictions? Because I, I will stand with you in arguing that too few victims of sexual assault report the crime, report it as a crime, and that too few victims of sexual assault actually receive any form of criminal justice. So what would you do differently, though, than what was done in this trial? Because from a 10,000-foot view, this looks like a pretty fair trial. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe we can expect the Crown to to have better preparation. Maybe, who knows, maybe the accusers need to have their own legal counsel to make sure their interests are represented. I don't know. I mean, here's a text, and here's, here's a really powerful text. The legal system is flawed. I went to court for a rape that happened when I was eight years old. They made me feel as, like, as though it were my fault that I was raped as a child. There were two of us who pressed charges, and he was acquitted on both. I know and volunteer with others who are going through the same thing. So imagine that. Imagine being sexually assaulted as a child. And eventually and finally, you're able to, to bring that forward and face your accuser in court. And that person walks. Right. What that would do to you. And then people already didn't believe you. People are going to turn around and call you a liar and say that didn't happen. I mean, that would be awful. And that's a, that's a scary thing to have to face. Yeah, I think that, that we need to be real. Just, you know, for, for people who are spiking the football today and saying, score one for the guys, and boy, there's a lot of you texting that. A lot of you texting that. We'll see if any of you call in. But you need to, you need to recognize something about this verdict today. And again, Rob, you read it earlier. The judge said this. The verdict does not mean that these sex assaults didn't occur. The verdict in today's judgment was that the judge could not convict based on the testimony, based on the evidence presented by the witnesses, the complainants. So that's what happened today. If we want to just stay on the point of fact, that's what happened today. We did not get definitive proof. We do not have an entry into the factual record of history. The Gian Gomeshi did not sexually assault these women. The only thing that we know is that he was not convicted of it. And there's a distinction to be made there. And that is where this conversation has to take place. Okay. Well, let's go to the phones, 974-8255. We're going to start with John's phone call. Hi there, John. Hey, good morning, fellas. And uh, from the guy over in northern Iraq, he says hello to He's back there. Anyways, uh, I think you know who I'm talking about. I do. Yes, indeed. 
Yeah, you bet. Listen, I was going to just say, it was, I mean, whether he did it or not, that's got nothing to do with me. And, I, you know, quite frankly, I don't think it's one score one for the guys. It's a terrible thing to say. I know you guys didn't say it. I'm just saying that people are texting in. Yeah. My point is, is that, you know what? There is a charge of criminal mischief and there's a charge of perjury. And I think that if people who are going to go be testifying in court and realize that if they say something in court, which in fact is, for lack of a better word, BS, okay, they should be held responsible for that. I really believe that the courts and the prosecutors can have enough information. And I don't know if these three women lied. I, I don't know. Well, I you know, the problem, know. I guess, for these women, but I think you're honest. I mean, the, the problem here for these women is that the judge in his ruling has accused the women of not being truthful on the stand. Correct. So I guess if the Crown were really intent on punishing them for that, they could do so. I, I think then you get into the realm, though, of public perception and how awful would it look. The, the perception already exists that the Crown let these women down, that the, the Crown prosecutor would then be trying to pass the buck and make it look as though mm -hmm. these women screwed up the case and, and he's going to now put them in jail for doing so. That would seem really petty and vindictive, even if there were some evidence to suggest that there was a crime. So that's something else the Crown has to, to consider and whether to press a charge and bring a case forward. Well, yeah, and the other thing to consider, right, is the burden of proof here. Now, um, if you wanted to bring charges of perjury against, let's say, any or all of the individuals involved uh, that complained in this case, uh, you would have to have proof beyond a reasonable doubt that they did. And that's not something that's been outlined by the judge in this case. He didn't say to them, he, he said it's difficult to, to find them credible or reliable. He didn't say, I know for demonstrable fact that they were untruthful on the stand, and here's a bullet list outlining what those facts are. He, you would need that in order to carry, a, uh, to, for it to make sense, to carry a charge of perjury forward. Okay, no, I mean, that's a good point, yeah. Because I, I know it's very, I think the only last person who was charged with conviction of perjury was the feller involved in the Air India bombing there. And that's a right. I, I think one of the, uh, if I'm not mistaken, one of the RCMP officers in the uh, Robert Jazansky case. Absolutely. Yeah. There, there, were, there were perjury charges in that as well. Right, because they would have brought yeah. a record forward that says, here's how we know he lied on the stand, right? He yeah. lied in his right. testimony. John, right. thanks oh. so much for the phone call and pass on our best wishes to our buddy overseas, okay? I will do. Okay, right. take care. Take care, sir. Thanks. Bye. Well, yeah, so, I mean, it, it's a fair point. I, I think it's a dangerous path to go down if the Crown is, is going to turn around and say, well, that person got acquitted, so therefore these witnesses lied. Let's go prosecute those people. I don't know that we want to go down that path. And even with these women, even if the judge is right, that maybe they weren't truthful on the stand, what's, what's to be gained from, from going after them? I, I'm not sure anything. Well, let's go to Jasmine on line two. Jasmine, thank you for your phone call. Hi. Thanks for reading my message out loud as well. No problem, oh, that was That was your text that, that we read earlier? Yes, it was my text message earlier. I went to okay. court about six years ago um, to face my uncle, who raped me when I was eight years old, as well as another girl. And how much time passed between the, that happening and, and it finally coming to, to court? Um, I went to the police when I was 18. So okay. about uh, 10 years had passed after. And it took another four years after I went to the police for it to go to trial. Jasmine, can you explain to us the what the case was built on? Like what, what sort of evidence you were able to present or, or what the testimony was? Um, well, about the, t the testimony was like what I remembered and what she remembered. Um, and then we were, I really felt like the police worked very hard on our case, but 
the crown was where it was lacking. We were not prepped for the trial. We were not told not to say always or um, kind of like the slang we use in everyday language. Right. We weren't prepped on the trial at all. So when we first went to trial and his defense lawyer was attacking us and basically calling out our reputation and the judge disallowed that. But um, when he was attacking us and basically asking why we allowed it to happen, uh, we weren't really prepared for that. I didn't think that they were allowed to kind of ask why we thought we were, why we didn't basically stop it or why we wanted to be raped at eight years old. So it was the defense case was was predicated upon um, an idea that an eight-year-old could overpower a grown man. Exactly. Or why we didn't like scratch him or hit him or anything like that, um, as well as the de- uh, defense brought in pictures of us there as a group. So the defense's thing was we were always as a group, so he couldn't have raped us because he was never alone with us. Right. Um, and then the judge, very it was a cultural barrier as well, so I don't think the judge seemed to understand can you explain that, that in our culture. It's very common. What is your culture? Can you explain what you mean by that? Um, so in the East Indian culture, it's very common for different family members to look after your children. Oh, I see. Um, so the judge didn't seem to understand that it was very common that we would be left in his care alone. Um, and that's what the defense said as well, that he wouldn't ha- we wouldn't have been left in his care. And then they brought in photos and everything like that that showed we were always there as a group of kids. But um, it never showed the pictures of us alone. So the judge didn't really seem to understand that. And she said same thing that she did it it's not that she didn't believe us it's that we couldn't get beyond a reasonable doubt so basically like if even if she believed us 95 percent, there was still a five percent doubt right jasmine it's you, you said that this all occurred when you were eight and then it was only when you were 18 that you came forward yes um and i know that because the the problem obviously is that there would be no physical evidence in this in this proceeding what was there no, there was no physical evidence, um, but as a child, when I was eight and I was threatened, if I told anyone right. that he would harm my family or anything, then you don't have the courage when you're eight years old to go not. forward to your parents, especially in, I know not only our culture, but other cultures as well. It is very much frowned upon and very much thought it is the woman's fault right, or the girl's fault. So I didn't feel comfortable coming forward when I was eight, and I also didn't know what was happening to other people until I was older. Right. Obviously, then by by coming forward, you're, you're hoping to to bring that person to justice that uh, that would help with your healing. Uh, I, I'm assuming. So, so given how things ended up transpiring, that you feel as though you were were being victimized all over again. What did the whole experience do to you? Um, I felt like when we, the defense lawyer was talking to us, it was I still have nightmares from the trial, especially because I felt like we first had to relive it again in front of everyone. And in front of him and then on top of that for it to be acquitted it was very much like everyone was staring at us being like these girls were lying right and luckily for me i had my family support but there were a lot of other people in the courtroom who were there that even said it out loud after the trial ended and we were walking out of the courtroom um were screaming at us that we were lying and how dare us accuse him and it was very, very tough to go through trial. I would never suggest going to trial for it to anyone. Um, I've had other girls come up to me and ask me if they, they'd gone through similar situations, if they should go to court. 
I've told them all it's not worth it. If you do get in, if you do get him accused and found guilty, he's not going to be in jail for very long. He's going to do it to other people still. The best thing you can do is vocalize it, let people know what happened, and educate different families about if your daughter comes forward and says something happened to her to support her. Jasmine, thanks very much for your phone call today. All right, thank you. All right, take care. Uh, we'll take a break. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge. This is News Talk 770. I'd be Roger. That would be Rob Breckenridge. One of us really likes free stuff. One of us thinks everything should be expensive. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I don't know. Which am I? <laughs> yeah, I I'm, all, I'm all good with free stuff. You know, hand-me-downs. I mean, uh, I, I got a son who just turned 10. My brother has a son who's uh, 7. So, you know, when we've had some stuff that uh, our son has outgrown or maybe didn't use much, maybe they want it. Maybe they can get some use out of it. Great. That's great. Because otherwise, we're just going to throw it out. So I, I, in, in theory, I, I don't mind this idea of someone saying, hey, you know what, I, I bought a new couch because I, I just really like this new couch that they had at this store. So my old couch is okay. I just, I just don't need it anymore. If someone wants to give that away to someone who is in need of a couch, hey, that's, that's a win-win. Reminds me, I've got a couch that I no longer want. Uh, that'll be a conversation with the wife. When you're talking about this with Bruce this morning on the morning news, Betty Joe pointed out that there are people that collect the free stuff off Kijiji and then they put it in their own garage sales, <laughs> well, which I guess yeah. is enterprising, right? You're going out there, you're, you're collecting something and then you're, you're reselling it for more value. The margins are outstanding. But, uh, I think basically what you have there is a recipe for a TV show called hoarders. Maybe. Well, okay, but the, but there are genuinely those who say, you know what, I don't I don't need this couch anymore. I'm just going to put it out of my lawn and just put a sign that basically says, hey, this is a free couch, and if someone happens to drive by and wants it, they can take it. Right? We've all seen that. Right. Um, so what this conversation is about is is whether the city needs to to formalize that, where we do it as like a, a citywide event, a so-called giveaway weekend. I don't know, once a year, once a month. I'm not sure well, how often one, this would be, but they, they once do a year this. is fine, Rob. Once a year, that's like a carry. This away. is done in other cities, apparently. <laughs> but let's find out more. All right, Stephanie QC joins us on the phone now. Common Sense Calgary, Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. Thank you, Rob. Great to be here. Thanks very much for having me today. Okay, well, explain this this concept to us. Giveaway weekend. Sure, no problem. Well, Giveaway Weekend, as you mentioned, is an initiative which is very popular across the country. It started in our capital of Ottawa in 2007. Uh, it was adopted shortly thereafter in Winnipeg in 2009, uh, and shortly after that in Halifax. Uh, so it does take place in major cities across the country, and many other smaller municipalities have followed suit since that time. Um, but as my dad likes to joke, he thinks every weekend in Toronto is giveaway weekend. So you're right. It certainly is um, something which happens spontaneously, pardon me, spontaneously as well um, in major cities. But um, cities which have formalized this event have had a lot of success with it. And how it works is, um, as you mentioned, as you gave examples of yourself of hand-me-downs and, and couches, um, 
residents go through their homes, uh, go through their garages. Maybe they find a lamp that still works, but they don't need any more, uh, a blender that no longer has any use for them, uh, children's toys, which they no longer require. And they place them on their front curb with a sign that clearly is marked free. That's very important that uh, it's known that these items are part of the giveaway weekend event. Right. And residents are just left to uh, wander the streets and take items um, as as they wish. So we at Common Sense Calgary think this is a fantastic initiative. We think that's inc- it's incredibly environmentally friendly. Uh, City Council is always looking for ways to benefit the environment. That's a, that's a theme there at City Hall. Uh, we like it because it's taxpayer friendly. There's no bureaucracy or administration involved. Um, some cities certainly do spend some money on advertising the weekend, but we don't think that it is a requirement. And it's completely voluntary. Uh, if you're someone who does not want to put out your items or doesn't want to wander, some people just don't like other people's used stuff. That's, right. that's the way it is. You don't have to participate. Um, but what it does is it creates a coordinated community effort um, for people, pack rats, to clear their stuff out and for other people to obtain things, um, which is especially important in these in these difficult economic times. Okay, it, yeah, yeah all, all really good stuff, but my ca- caveat on this, as I was saying before the news package, is that I just, I only want this done once a year because I don't think it's okay for people to just you know, litter the curb with things they don't want, regardless of what their intentions are. Like I've got like one man's really nice free couch is another person's raggedy piece of upholstery. That's going to sit out in the rain for two weeks. True that. And that's why most uh, municipalities only do it once or twice a year. Some cities choose to do both a spring and a fall uh, giveaway weekend, and other cities only choose to do a spring giveaway weekend. So this is certainly not an activity that is intended for every single weekend. I I personally wouldn't want to see other people's stuff out on their front lawns um, every weekend of the year. But one weekend um, a year where uh, it is a scheduled weekend where everyone is aware that they, they have to be ready, have to have their items out at that time, and that this is an opportunity if they've been looking for, say, a desk for their child or uh, a, a bunk bed, um, a bookshelf, maybe a bunk bed's a little ambitious, a, a bookshelf and anything like this, you know, maybe this is the weekend where they can find it. Um, I, I agree with you, though, and I guess that this is a reason why we are encouraging this city to adopt this so that it is um, a unified community effort of one weekend. You're right, as opposed to every weekend people placing their items outside, which you do see from time to time in Calgary. One of my favorite paintings in my bathroom I picked up off the curb uh, that someone had left out. Um, So it does happen, but we think this is a great idea to have a sort of a community collective um, opportunity, maybe in conjunction with Neighbor Day. Yeah, right. It's the problem, though, is, okay, let's say um, that, that the uh, giveaway weekend was two weeks ago. And now all of a sudden I, I'm like, oh, wait a sec, I, I need a desk or I need to get rid of this desk. Does that mean I have to wait another 50 weeks? Well, no, 
Oh, as you mentioned, of course, there are always other options, the Kijiji, the Craigslist. Um, I, I try very hard not to throw anything out. I'll look for um, certainly other options. I know friends and I have clothing swaps from time to time. I certainly take a lot of items to Goodwill. Uh, but this is, a, this is a great, as I said, coordinated um, com- community effort. Um, you know, other concerns I have heard about in sit- other cities are uh, people taking items which are not part of the giveaway weekend. Clearly, if someone's barbecue is uh, out on their porch and there's no free sign, no one should be running off with their barbecue or like rise for their Adirondack chairs or what have you. Yeah, uh, yeah it, ha- it happens, um, and it's a concern. Um, but, you know, it has to be clearly marked free. And another um, certain challenge that the city would have to consider would be just make having very clear guidelines so that there's no dangerous items in the giveaway weekend pile. Like, there are many municipalities which prohibit... Um, uh, having bedding, bed sheets, uh, in giveaway weekend items for the spread of fear of spread of bed bugs. And that's a legitimate concern in this day and age. So I think, you know, people definitely have to be smart about what they are, um, putting in their piles for the giveaway weekends. Uh, but, and as well, people have to be smart when they consider what they're, what they're taking, taking home. I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, there are some items that I'm sure I, I, I really wouldn't feel good about taking away from, from giveaway weekend. But as I said, uh, you know, we think this is environmentally friendly that, you know, that's just a constant theme we're hearing at city hall taxpayer friendly. We love that. And again, completely voluntary. If, if you don't want to take someone else's stuff, you know, you don't have to do it. If you want to get money for your stuff, that's, that's a, uh, you know, that's a lot of people want value, like as in a monetary value for everything right. that they uh, dispose of as well. That's, that's fair as well. If you don't want to participate, you don't have to. Right. And the fact that the city could put out guidelines on it would be helpful, Rob. This one time I had these paver stones when I did a little backyard reno, and I put all the paver stones I wanted to get rid of out in the alley, a big sign that says free on it, but I kept a few behind and they were in the yard. There's a lady came into my yard, was taking the ones that I had reserved. I was like, what are you doing? That fence there, should it be an indicator that you can't come in and get these? But it was just a bit weird. Um, you know, I'm curious, Stephanie, like, is, is there kind of a uh, universal way that this is done? Like, are there guidelines from other cities that the city of Calgary could just take and basically plug in with little effort? Because you mentioned that one of the benefits is there's little bureaucracy involved. You know full well there'd be some bureaucracy involved if they undertook this as a citywide program. True, and I, I understand what you're saying in that um, even placing it on the website, um, you know, certainly requires the resources of someone from City Hall um, to do that. Um, but, you know, all of these cities, uh, Ottawa, Winnipeg, and Halifax, if you go to their civic websites, um, I believe one is www.halifaxgivewayweekend.com.ca. Um, I mean, the guidelines are very clearly listed out there in terms of items which are acceptable, items which are not acceptable. And another uh, really important point about this, Roger and Rob, is that the onus is on the resident to remove the items after right. the weekend if if they are not um, taken. Um, there there should be no additional um, cleanup required from the city. The regular disposal method should be used of the blue bin and the the brown bin. And if they don't fit within those, then the regular disposal methods at the recycling depot um, to to the dump if large enough, or if, yeah, if it's so large that it requires that. Or again, these other alternatives. Alternatives that we talked about, uh, Kijiji, 
Craigslist um, or Goodwill. You know, so that's a very important part of the piece as well, that residents would have to be responsible for removing the items um, from from their front steps. But uh, it has worked very well in, in other cities and, and, um, it's, and for relatively little money. You're right, there's always going to be um, money in terms of um, minimal administration. And as I said uh, earlier in, in the call, some people, or pardon me, some cities do spend money on advertising. Um, but if, it's, if it fits in with conjunction with Neighbor Day, for example, Neighbor Day weekend, you know, perhaps that might be uh, one more line in the uh, in in the text of the of the neighbor day weekend so we we still feel very strongly it can be done for relatively minimal uh, civic, or I should say public funds. Yeah. All right. Well, people can read more at uh, com. Stephanie, thanks for making some time for us here. Thank you, Roger. Thank you, Rob. And I'd just like to uh, say, you know, we're really urging City Council to consider this initiative. Um, if residents out there feel strongly about it, feel free to contact your City Council counselor, excuse me, and encourage them to adopt this initiative of Giveaway Day. Thanks, Roger. Thanks, Rob. Have a great long weekend. All right. There you go. It's Stephanie QC. Common Sense Calgary. We're back with more. Your calls right after this. See, I like this idea, Rob, in that uh, we would have a situation where Calgarians from all quadrants would be able to say things like, hey, I got this great half bag of dirt and a VCR for free. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the, see, the thing is, we went through a move recently. Right. So I can speak to, you know, getting rid of like there was this old dresser we wanted to get rid of an old bookshelf we wanted to get rid of this old tv stand kind of fireplace dealy we wanted to get rid of so there's something called i think it's called varage sale i didn't never even heard of it right. it's basically like kijiji so my wife said well i'll just put this stuff on this varage sale and honest to god it was gone like within hours people were just like bam i want that i'll, mm-hmm. I'll be there so we were, you know, posting it for like 10 bucks or something. Oh, there you see. Someone else texted to say VarageSale.com. Right. I think it's so a it's great just, idea. There's so many ways to do this. So the, just the dumping the crap on your sidewalk, <laughs> it just seems tacky and lazy. That's, that's my complaint about it. Okay, fair enough. And before we get to some phone calls, look, I'm having a lot of fun with this topic because let's face it, we, we have this phenomenon right now where people just trot out what they view as like unsightly trash that they really want to get rid of. Nobody brings like a dresser to the curb with a free sign on it thinking, this has given me so much joy in my life. I want others to experience the same joy. They're doing it because they don't have a means or patience to haul it all the way to the dump and pay a tipping fee, right? They just want this off their hands. So it's great. The only thing I don't want is for this to be this permission for every Calgarian to just start hucking things out the window and having it land on the lawn. You just put a tag, a free sign upon it. Because I don't want to live in a neighborhood where we're, you know, putting the appliances on the front lawn. Well, sure, we should be concerned about the amount of stuff we, we throw out in, in today's society. But let's be honest, when you get your iPhone 6, you're not going to put your iPhone 5 out on the driveway. <laughs> free sign. No, but your iPhone 4, <laughs> it's about high time. Hi, Trevor, thanks for this phone call. Hey, how you guys doing? Real good. <clears throat> good. Um, you know, uh, I'm from, uh, my parents live in Coquitlam, B.C. Uh, I'm from B.C. originally. And uh, they have a spring clean day, which is probably coming up if it hasn't already passed, of which uh, the neighbors in the community can all put stuff out on the front of the curb. Uh, and so I think it's intended. I'm sure there's some guidelines in place, but uh, it's intended that these things can be reused or recycled. It's not general garbage or plastic bottles per se. 
it's couches, furniture, um, lamps, whatever you may name it. Um, and uh, it, it goes on for a couple of days, and you'd be amazed at how many people come around and, and pick up that stuff, be it an old desk, be it an old futon, right. be it a dress or the like. Uh, at the end of that, whatever is left on the curb, uh, the city comes by with a giant truck and hauls it away. What ends up, what does it become? Does it go to like Goodwill or something like that? Uh, I don't know, uh, to be honest with you, um, what they do with it. Because uh, sure they should, right? Like, that's one of the issues. Like, there's a lot of people, there's you and me, Trevor, who like this idea because maybe we'll, you know, driving back from church or the pizza place, like, we'll we'll, we'll pop around and, and maybe we'll see something we like. Hey, cool, throw that in the back of the truck. That's outstanding. And then there's students who will outfit their dorm rooms this way or whatever. And it's all fantastic. But, I mean, there's also these people that have mobility issues for whom this this event could really serve but they can't get around and take advantage of it. Hey, uh, I moved to the city once upon a time uh, with very little money, and my first couch was off the street. Totally. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I do agree that it should be managed. It, you know, I mean, I live in Bridgeland, and uh, I unfortunately live beside a, a four-story walk-up apartment. Uh, and in and around uh, apartments where people are moving in and out often, uh, there's often stuff left out in the street. Granted, it's typical in the alley. Uh, my problem is, is that uh, I see it all the time, except it's on the front yard. Uh, it could be a barbecue, it could be bosses, it could be a dresser, it could be shoes. Um, you know, so uh, I do believe that there has to be some sort of control in place by yeah. the city. You can't make it a free-for-all, otherwise the city will turn into crap uh, that's, quick. I, that's ironic, uh, Trevor. We're going to leave it at that. It's ironic because it actually is a free-for-all. That's the whole point. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. But, yeah. you know, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, the second-hand stores, uh, Goodwill, or even Salvation Army. Because I guess if they're able to take that free thing that you give to them and, you know, they can sell it for five or ten bucks, that that's helping them out. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that, that's another option. If you want to get rid of something, why not help out these, you know, these agencies? Yeah, there's also the, the trend of upcycling that we see right now. There's a lot of people that will, like, take a pallet from behind a store and then upcycle it into some furniture or a toy or, or something like that, light fixtures. That stuff's pretty cool. I get kind of into the upcycling movement a bit on, on the weekends. But um, here's a text message assignment for you, please, 770-770. Text us, like, a random combination of two things, and if it's funny, we might... Read it on the radio. Is that a thing? I feel like you're trying to goad me into saying, what's upcycle? Yes. <laughs> Nailed it. No, no, no. Upcycling is pretty cool. It's where people take, like, what is otherwise, you know, trash or a, a past item and then give it maybe new function but also new life. Interesting. Um, but if you do want to uh, see a good website for this sort of thing, go to Subra. Uh Dan, how you doing? I'm doing great, guys. How are you? Fantastic. Awesome. Hey, here's another angle for you. Uh, one of my neighbors set out two rain barrels to give away. Yeah. And he did not put a free sign. So I was like, should I take him? Should I not <laughs> right. take him? So I guess I could have knocked. But something I thought about was on the free day, I can just make up a bunch of free signs and just take anything I want and just leave a free sign behind. Well, so even just that, I mean, <laughs> I'll take your barbecue and then just throw a free sign on the ground. Like if your kid leaves his bike in the driveway, someone's going to come by on free day and say, oh, awesome, free bike. And just leave a free sign behind. And then even if the cops come, I'll be like, I thought it was free. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dad. Appreciate it. You're digging up the sod on some guy's lawn. There was a sign right in the sod that said this is free. A, this is a funny text. Someone else uh, texted to say uh, that he had a washer and dryer at the curb with a free sign, sat there for three days, changed the sign to $50 each, and they were gone that night. 
I've heard of that. Yeah, I've heard people say that if if it's free, it's garbage. If there's a price tag on it, it's it's desirable. Yeah, okay, I can understand that. I guess. Yeah. It's our buddy Lynn on line three. Hi, Lynn. Hello. Hey, Lynn. I'm hes- hesitant to say anything given that uh, Rob expressed his opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be afraid. Don't Once be afraid. I've expressed my opinion, that's pretty much all that needs to be said on, on really any topic. <laughs> well, I live in a nice neighborhood. I'm a nice person, as you know. But I, I do put free signs, and I do make my husband drag stuff out to the curb all the time. And people take it? People take everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, he, he constantly says to me, no one's going to take this. This is embarrassing. And I make him do it. And every morning we wake up, it's gone. That's perfect. Uh, yeah, I, I, thanks for the call, Lynn. I had a bunch of pea gravel one time in my backyard. I, had to, I got rid of this. is that aforementioned backyard right now. Anyway, I took out some fence boards, shoveled it into a big box that I'd made in the alley, and then closed up the fence, put an ad on Kijiji. I was getting, like, calls from my neighbors. There's someone in your alley stealing your rocks. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, let's get one more. Here yeah, we sure. got uh, Tim on the line. Hey, Tim. Hi guys, uh, I, I like the topic, and actually it worked for me. And and actually, I had uh, hide a bed, I had washer dryer. I, I was just basically cleaning stuff out. It was still good, um, but I wanted to give it away. I could haul it away. I could do whatever I wanted with it. But there was a certain satisfaction when people would drive by. You see them stop, they get out. And one example, a guy's daughter had just moved out. They were looking for an end table and a lamp and, you know, the, the hide-a-bed, and they took it all. And so it works, and, uh, and we recycle, reuse, and it doesn't go to the landfill then, and it doesn't cost anybody, and you actually get some satisfaction of helping others, as long as it's not junk and it doesn't get left out in the rain. Yeah, and that's the problem with, with it being, like, more than an annual event, right? Then all of a sudden it's just... A permission to to litter the front of your property with with whatever possessions you no longer want to be in possession of, and I think that's a problem for neighborhoods. But if it's like one day and it's event based, I think you got something completely different on your hands there. Well, and and I think that if you use common sense too, and that's that's the other thing. But uh, there is a lot of communities that also have uh, the community roundup where you can take all your garbage to the local community, throw it in the big. Uh, 40-yard bins and dumpsters, and, and that's a community event, and maybe this goes in conjunction. Maybe there's free stuff that goes with that, and, you know, in that day, in the community day event. But I don't think you should have a restriction on just common sense prevails and uh, and don't be tacky and don't leave it a mess, and I think it's uh, good for everybody. Yeah, good call. Thanks a lot for that, Tim. Appreciate that. Yeah, the other question you didn't really get into from sort of the taxpayer's perspective, how much is this going to cost? How much involvement is there need to be on the part of the city. And is that, is that a worthwhile endeavor for the city? I mean, is that a good use of taxpayer dollars? It's one thing if the city just wants to kind of give its blessing to this. But I think what Stephanie Cusey was describing is something much more than that, where the city's got to be involved in helping to clean up stuff after the fact. The city's got to be involved in spending money to promote this. So I, I don't know. I think people are kind of antsy about frivolous spending of tax dollars does it fall into that category you know i see i see it as a solution to that as well though rob and let me put this to you you know how on halloween we see uh, our friends at shaw they'll drive the trucks around on that what do they call that the pumpkin patrol right where they're looking out for kids so you know they'll have volunteers that drive these vans around i mean uh and, and just watch out for kids these same vans could be used to to transport a bunch of free stuff to um 
Goodwill, Salvation Army, uh, Habitat for Humanity, all these different organizations that, that help people out with sort of, you know, free household goods, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that um, the city could look at it a couple different ways. One, it's a way to uh, deal with very effectively, uh, create a solution to the problem of people littering their front their properties and making eyesores for their neighbors by confining it to one day and then saying, look, guys, the other 51 weekends of the year, this is going to be a bylaw ticketable offense. So don't do it. We're going to enforce this from now on. You've got your one or two weekends when you can go ahead and do it. And the second thing is it gives us an opportunity to engage those communities that have, or those corporations rather, that operate in the city that have the, uh, the means of moving these goods around and doing something good at the end of the day after four o'clock. Hey, cool. The trucks are going to come by and if anything's left over, they're just going to toss them in the back and get them to people who need them. All right. Well, I, it remains to be seen, I guess, whether the city's going to get on board with this. So it's still an open question at this point. Uh, we'll revisit it, I'm sure, if uh, if indeed this does come up at council. We're going to break for the 1130 News and talk about uh, the idea of selling weed in liquor stores. Alberta liquor stores are at least intrigued by the idea. We'll find out more when we return. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770.